Everything is crumbling before all of them. Now, while many here will say, well, yeah, the crumble is Biden administration. He's crumbling. He's there. Well, like I've always said, don't listen to anyone. Simply listen to your president if need be. He tells you everything you need to know. You know, it's really funny that he spoke about <laughs> cock. Uh, did that come out right? Cock, Coke Brothers, Coke. Should we call them Coke or Cock? Which one? Which one do you guys want to use? I'm, I'm predisposed to like the first one. Yeah. So he called him. Why'd he call him? What does he want from him? What is it that he needs from our president? It's a really, really good question. What would that be? Well, let's listen to what our president has shared. Now, while many yesterday will be like, oh, yeah, the dam's breaking for Biden. That's your show. Today, we're going to talk about the global show and just demonstrate to you just how obsessed they are with Russia. Today, I'm going to show you how they are insanely obsessed with Russia. And it almost makes you wonder, um, why are you so obsessed with Russia? Is it something they said, or is it because you're trying to create an enemy where there isn't one so that you may then focus on the one you want to oust because it's actually in the way of the people you are partnering with? That was a mouthful, but maybe it'll make sense. We shall see. We shall see. But for now, maybe we should listen to what our president had to say or the information he shared. Remember, listen to him. He tells you everything you really need to know. Fox News alert, Devin Archer, the man who Hunter Biden once called a Biden, just flipped on the first family, and it's bad. Archer, who's been in Ukrainian board meetings, Chinese dinners, to the Biden family beach house, is saying that Joe Biden was on the phone with Hunter and his foreign business partners at least 20 times. 20 times. Archer says it was to sell the Biden brand. And Hunter described the Biden brand as gold. Here's how it worked. 
President Barack Obama would assign Joe Biden a country to handle. And when Biden was assigned to a country, a dirty company with a lot of problems in that country would hire Hunter Biden because they needed something from Joe Biden. Hunter would have dinner with some crooked foreign kleptocrat, and in the middle of dinner, he'd say, hey, let's call my pop. He'd get his dad on the phone, put it on speaker, and Joe Biden would say hello to Hunter's business partners. And that was what the business partners were paying for, that phone call. They were paying Hunter because he could get Joe Biden on the phone like that. And everywhere Joe went, Hunter got paid, and Joe delivered. Devin Archer told House investigators today that the corrupt Ukrainian gas company Burisma only hired Hunter so his father Joe could get the prosecutor investigating them fired. Devin Archer testified Hunter was with the crooked Ukrainian CEO when he called D.C. to demand Joe Biden fire the prosecutor. Three days later, Joe Biden flew to Ukraine and got the prosecutor fired and then bragged about it. This is what Democrats impeached Trump for probing. Devin Archer also testified that Hunter pulled the same move with other fat cat foreign execs. Archer says Hunter put Joe Biden on the phone with his Chinese partner, Jonathan Lee. And remember, Joe Biden flew Hunter to China on Air Force Two where Hunter met Jonathan Lee. Hunter introduced Joe and Jonathan Lee in Beijing. They Can we also talk about how um, his partner that was arrested, Patrick Ho, was the guy that went to Iran with cash for Obama. But I guess we're not going to talk about that. We're just going to talk about low-level fruit because people need it in little doses because we're only going to focus on the micro aspect of things, right? We're not going to talk about Patrick Ho in Iran. They shook hands. It was a $20 million handshake. The Bidens made $20 million from that Chinese deal. After Hunter was given an equity stake in the Chinese investment firm, the Obama-Biden administration greased approvals for Jonathan Lee to take over American car manufacturers. Joe Biden, who claims he didn't talk to his son about his business, even wrote a letter of recommendation to Brown University on behalf of Jonathan Lee's daughter. Jonathan Lee is a Communist Party power broker who our vice president went to bat for, helping his daughter cut the line in the admissions offices at Ivy League schools. Why? Because his family was getting paid. Devin Archer also testified that Vice President Joe Biden personally met with a Russian billionaire, Elena Petrina, back in 2014 while VP at Cafe Milano in Georgetown. Joe Biden had dinner with her, and a month later, the Russian billionaire wired Hunter Biden three and a half million dollars. You know, I, I, can we just talk about structure for a second? Okay. Can we talk about structure? Right. Can we talk about it if it was someone else? What if it was Chelsea Clinton? Or I don't know. What if it was one of the Bush girls? Or what if it was Don Jr.? Well, we can't say Bush. Well, let's talk Cheney. <laughs> but we know how that goes. Think about structure. Who appointed Joe Biden to all these nations? Barack Hussein Obama. Who provided Joe the front? Barack Hussein Obama. Who's the real big guy? Barack Hussein Obama. Joe would refer, refer to him as the big guy.
remember the video with the whole quid pro quo? And I said, quid pro Joe, right? Yeah, that caught on. Well, it's very interesting right now how we're hyper-focused on just Biden. People think that in this war, they need to focus on small little pieces because people are too dumb. Or that we're going to forget that Barack Hussein Obama oversaw all this. But, you know, it was just a coincidence that someone drowned on his property. I wonder if they came in with white glove service or asked if they can investigate. I wonder where the guy's phone is. Or, shall I say, where's his secondary phone? <laughs> little by little, they give us Joe. Little by little. Little by little. Thank you, Hunter. Little by little. But in the end, it's the head of the snake that you want. And this is no Hydra anymore. Well, Democrats say Joe Biden had no idea who he was talking to. It was clear that it was part of the daily conversations that Hunter Biden had with his father. Um, and it was, and, and sounded like most of the time, uh, now President Biden didn't even know who the people he was at dinner, he was just asked to say hello. Uh, and he would, you know, talk about the, the way he described it several times. They asked over and over and over. He described what the weather was, how, uh, how, what's going on on your end. The Democrats went from the laptop's Russian misinformation to Biden was having dinner with Hunter's business partners, but all they talked about was the weather. Now, when I eat dinner, it's usually at least an hour. I'm there for three courses. You can talk weather for maybe five minutes tops. But Biden's talking to a Russian billionaire about the weather the whole dinner? What's it like in Moscow? It's cold. Biden's had meetings at Cafe Milano with the Russians, the Ukrainians, the Mexicans, Kazakhstanis, even the Greeks, all Hunter's business partners. You're saying Joe Biden talked about the weather the whole time and had no idea who he was having dinner with? Even if Hunter puts his business partners on speakerphone with his dad and they don't talk business at all, you're saying the next day when Hunter talks to Joe, and they say they talk every day, Joe doesn't say, hey, Hunter, um, what are you doing in Dubai and who are those Ukrainians you put me on the phone with last night? Come on. The Biden family was selling access to Joe. The phone call, even if it was weather-related, was the access. Biden always delivered on the back end. The Chinese and the Ukrainians got what they wanted out of Biden. Even the Russian lady who bribed Hunter three and a half mil, Joe Biden left her off the sanctions list. The one Russian billionaire not on the sanctions list happens to be the same one who paid the Biden family millions of bucks. But the Democrats say, what was Joe Biden supposed to be, rude? And not say hello to Hunter's corrupt foreign business partners? Clearly, he talked whether about the weather or whatever, but he said specifically that he's never talked to them. Doesn't this contradict? He never said that he has never spoken to anyone. He said that he had nothing to do with Hunter Biden's business dealings. If he says hello to someone that he sees his son with, well, is he supposed to say, hi, son? Oh, no, I'm not going to say hello to the other people at the table or the other people on the phone. It's kind of a preposterous premise to think that a father should not say hello to people that the son are at dinner with. So the new defense is Biden's mismanners. 
snubbing his son, sniveling and conniving foreign business partners would be the wrong thing to do. Now, we know that Hunter Biden brought his sleazy business partners to the Obama White House over a hundred times. So Joe Biden never asked Hunter, who are all these people? The only thing he asked was, what's the weather like in Bucharest? I mean, at this point, Joe knows more about the weather than Al Roker. So, why did Devin Archer flip? Well, because he's going to prison. And he thought, you know, being Hunter's best buddy would keep him out of prison. Devin Archer can't be too happy with Hunter Biden right now. Here's a text he sent to Hunter. Why did your dad's administration appointees arrest me and try to put me in jail? Just curious, some of our partners asking out here. And then this one. Why would they try and ruin my family and destroy my kids and no one from your family side step in and at least try to help me? I don't get it. Devin Archer was sentenced to a year in prison for stealing $60,000 from an Indian tribe. I think it was more than that. Hunter Biden was a part of that deal and was the only one not to get indicted. Once again, everybody in Biden's orbit arrested, imprisoned, or they're missing. And before Devin Archer's testimony, Biden's Department of Justice sent a threatening letter to Devin Archer's judge telling him it's time for Devin to report to prison soon. This comes on the heels of we us learning about another House Republican that says Biden's got foreign bank accounts they're under investigation. Listen. When we pulled up the first tranche of suspicious activity reports, of which there were more than 170, we then realized that there are more suspicious activity reports on more Biden family members and more information that we've got to dig into and investigate. What we have to do, and we're in the process, process of now, is accumulating bank records, not just here domestically, but there are bank records in foreign countries with foreign banks that we also have to get. That takes money and time, um, which we are doing and trying to collect that information. Sources tell Primetime that lawyers on House Oversight, they're not going on vacation like the rest of Congress for the next six weeks. They're still subpoenaing Biden family bank records. And now they're moving into the deposition phase of the investigation. Devin Archer won't be the first Biden business associate that's going to be interviewed. Tony Bobulinski and Whitey Bulger's relative James Bulger will sit down for interviews. Several federal employees knowledgeable of the Biden situation will sit down with investigators. And we expect, when Congress returns to work in mid-September, that the House will have enough evidence to begin the impeachment inquiry. Now, opening an impeachment inquiry turbocharges congressional oversight powers, allowing them to, you know, fast track and have far-reaching subpoena power and quick court rulings. Now, this will force the media to cover the evidence that we've presented here for years. And it'll force Joe Biden, who's supposed to be out campaigning, to answer questions about why he's been lying for all these years. This could potentially end Joe Biden's re-election campaign. So Democrats have a decision to make. Are they going to get behind Gavin Newsom? Are they going to continue to say Joe Biden's a weatherman? Weatherman? Get out of here. Now, let's talk about our domestic news because it's important. It's important before we walk into a very early break, because we're going to shift to Africa like I said we would. But during this break, I'm so torn. Do I showcase the Soviet Union declassified UFO encounters, or during the break, do I show the fifth state? 
so conflicting. Maybe I'll decide after we see here this pony show of, yeah, so which one of these judges is a problem, you know, because finally someone said what I've been saying. All the others have had paid vacations, but you don't see any of the other justices being told, you know, that they're corrupt. It's only the ones that they want to get rid of, the ones that tell me, right, that I can't control them. Those are the ones that are corrupt. This is a very needy exchange. Because here's where you're going to see the double standard. Double standard. Of course. It's always double. They need the double. Double, double standard. And so here's John Kennedy asking questions. And we all know. They're all dirty. But this is a pretty good question. And towards the end of the, after the five minute mark, it starts to get real juicy. Here you go. Who have joined us today. Um, Mr. Payne, let me start with you, sir. You're kind of in the middle here. Uh, you work for the Campaign Legal Center, is that right? That's correct. Is your your uh, website campaignlegal.org correct okay does not the front page of your website say i'm going to quote here i want to get it right the current u.s supreme court is a threat to our democracy the current u.s supreme court is a threat to our democracy. Did I read that right? I what I can say is that our uh, organization. But, but is that on your website? I am not certain exactly what's here, on the website. Here it is, right here, okay. biggest Dallas. What that refers to is the voting rights legislation. I mean, voting rights cases of the Supreme Court. Uh, our organization is a voting rights organization that fights for all Americans to have the ability to vote. Yeah, but you got to click a bunch of times to find that explanation. I just want to make sure. I read that correctly. Um, a few months ago, Mr. Payne, you, re you retweeted the following statement. Some justices are politicians in robes who thrive in a system where access and influence are for sale. Some justices are politicians in robes who thrive in a system where access and influence are for sale. Now, that's a pretty bold statement. Is, I'm sorry, Senator, is that a news article? T t no, sir. That's a, that's a retweet here. You, you tweeted this out. Tell me which justices are for sale. Uh, I don't recall that tweet, but... Uh, here, here it is. November 21, 2022. Can you tell me which justices are for sale? Uh, no. Are any of them for sale? No, the problem is that the American public has a perception that some yeah, justices yeah, I'm, I'm may gonna, be. I'm going to establish the point first. I want to know. You tweeted this out. Do you believe that some justices are for sale? And if so, which ones? 
No, uh, Senator, I do not believe that justices are. Then for why'd sale. you tweet this out? What can you provide more context of what sure. that is? I, I'll get you a copy, but here it is. I okay checked I, it and triple checked it. You also said I, so, less than a month ago that that John Roberts. You retweeted this out. John Roberts is a disgrace. No, I actually. Not I disagree with 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 Justice Roberts. Well, you didn't call him Chief Justice Roberts. You called him John Roberts. No, this is that's, you, that's, retwe you retweeted this. No, Senator, I did not retweet that. Yes, sir, you did right here. I will need to see. Balance. I will. Can you provide a copy to sure. me now? But the, sure. I, I did not. Retweet can you tell that. me why you think Chief Justice Roberts is a disgrace? I did not say that. Did not retweet that. Oh, okay, maybe maybe Twitter got it wrong. Someone got it wrong. Let me ask you this, because the understated the unstated premise of all this sometimes it's stated, but. The unstated premise of all all this is that is that some justices have been bribed. Let's just cut to the chase. Okay. Now, let, let me let me stay with you, Mr. Payne. Um. Well, let, let me go to Mr. Fogel. I don't want to just pick on you, Mr. Payne. You you can you can be looking up on Twitter where you said those things. Um, on April 4th, 2019, the American Civil Liberties Union paid for Justice Sotomayor's trip to San Juan, Puerto Rico. You ever been to San Juan, Mr. Fogel? Is it expensive? I keep forgetting. Um, well, it depends when you go. Yeah. How much do you think it costs to go down there? Uh, <laughs> depends whether you fly first class or economy. What if you fly first class? Oh, probably a couple thousand dollars. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the ACLU, do they have cases in front of the Supreme Court? All the time. They do? All the time? Sure. Do, do you think the ACLU was, was trying to bribe Justice Sotomayor? No, sir, I don't. I don't either. I don't either. But that's the unstated premise of all of this. Well, Senator, if I All these articles about Clarence, Justice Clarence Thomas and the Chief Justice of the United States and Justice Gorsuch, who sold an interest in an LLC to a, to a, to a, to a Democratic donor who had never met that they bought him, isn't it? May, may I say something uh, in response, Senator? I think there are two things going on here today. Uh, I think there is a political conflict, which is, as I said earlier, it's very intense. It's hyper-partisan. Uh, both sides have things to say. And then I think there's an ethical well, issue. You, when you accuse people of being bribed, it kind of no, 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 gets, gets their attention. Sir, hold on a second. I'm not accusing anybody of being bribed. I'm not. But some people are. Some people are. The reason I'm here is I think that there is an ethical issue that, as Senator Graham said earlier, it would be good for the court to think about in terms of being more transparent. That is what I care about. That's the only thing I care about. There's a lot of political back and forth that's very interesting. I'm interested in it as a citizen of the United States. But I, I think the most useful thing that this or any other committee could do is think about how do we make our institutions... Well, how are you going to do that in the context, though, 
of, of one of our leaders for whom I have great respect going on the steps of the United States Supreme Court telling two justices if they vote in a way he doesn't like, they will pay the price and reap the whirlwind. I, I and you have another one of your witnesses here tweeting out stuff saying, no. quote, some justices are politicians in robes who thrive in a system where access and influence are for sale. Yep. He said they were bought like a sack of potatoes. Okay, I'm not, I'm not true. I'm not going to comment on that, Senator. That, that's not anything I had anything to do with. So. <laughs> Thank you. Hope. Thank you, Senator Kennedy. Senator Hirono. Uh, wasn't that interesting? So it's not for Sotomayor a problem when she sent to Puerto Rico, which I've been actually, I flew first class, but I got the tickets for like 300 bucks round trip for each. So that was pretty cheap. If you know when to buy and when the algorithm resets, I've said this before, you get the cheapest ass tickets ever, but you always have to purchase your tickets on Monday through Tuesday morning when the algo resets, there's a window and each airline shifts the window so you can't find it. So you got to be on top of it. Now, we're going to take a quick break before we get into the EOS and what's happening. Um, you know, I told you in Africa comes focus. It's game over. This is where the game is over. And I thought there's a lot of things we could talk about. I thought we could go dig into those, uh, you know, everyone's like, oh, my God, they admitted UFOs and no one's listening. Why would they listen? Clapper was sitting in the front fucking row. This is what a PSYOP is. My friend of a friend of a friend that walked the dog of my fifth cousin told me. Was he lying? The information he gave? 90% of it was pretty accurate. But the question is why now and why make it look so rabbit holy and why is Clapper running the show? Mm. Well, I thought it would be great to just look at the, you know, the fifth estate with Eddie Harmer and Rattlesnake Island back in the 80s for um, a good learning intermission. How's that? So during this intermission, we will learn more about some things. And rather than play music, I thought I'd play this two minute clip which is something that aired on CBS over a long time ago. See you all just after this inquisitive and educational break. When your president met our queen at Buckingham Palace last year, he rolled up in The Beast, a huge reinforced Cadillac built to resist bullets, missiles, even chemical attacks. When your president met our queen at Buckingham Palace last year, he rolled up in The Beast, a huge reinforced Cadillac built to resist bullets, missiles, even chemical attacks. There were also 200 Secret Service agents in tow, although what they got up to in the evenings is anyone's guess. Buckingham Palace can be a, a pretty risky venue for visiting dignitaries. Her Majesty, of course, is always perfectly charming, but Monty, Holly and Willow are a law unto themselves. These three little corgi dogs may not look threatening, but they tend to chase people and then bite them. Now, five years ago, the Queen herself was spotted with a bandaged wrist after intervening to break up a canine squabble. The wound to the royal hand required three stitches. Corgis, of course, were originally bred to help round up cattle, so they usually go for your ankles. And when you see pictures of famous people with their heads bowed down in front of the Queen, they are probably on the lookout for those dogs. But you're thinking, 
Why doesn't she simply lock them up when she's entertaining you? You don't know our queen. She's had corgis for years. Her dad, King George VI, gave her a puppy for her 18th birthday. She's bred them. She's besotted by them. They've got their own official menu. Poached chicken, liver, rabbits, pheasant and home-baked scones, which Her Majesty crumbles up and personally adds to their dishes every day. They've got their own room in Buckingham Palace, you know. And each Christmas, the Queen fills three little stockings with presents for her pets. These dogs accompany her everywhere. At one notorious state banquet, a corgi, now dare I say this, indiscreetly peed on the rug. Her Majesty didn't bat an eyelid. She summoned the Master of the Royal Household, Rear Admiral Sir somebody or other, who commandeered a blotting pad from the Queen's writing desk and then went down on his hands and knees to deal with the damp patch. Everyone else pretended not to notice. The corgi breed has been in decline for a little while. Only 300 puppies used to be registered every year, but they are now making a significant comeback, thanks to Her Majesty's Diamond Jubilee and her three sometimes ill-tempered four-legged friends. This is Ed Boyle for CBS News in London. When somebody wants to build something on his property and the people next door don't like it, their first reaction is probably to protest through the proper channels, organize a petition, call a meeting, march down to City Hall. But sometimes things can get out of hand. Tempers get frayed. There are shouting matches over the fence. Sourness and bitterness and a minor dispute turns into a nightmare. But situations like that seldom get as ugly as the one that's been going on for 13 years in BC's Okanagan Valley. It's over Lake Okanagan's only island. To some, it's known as Rattlesnake Island. To others, it's Ogopogo Island after the lake's legendary monster. But for one of the valley's residents, Eddie Haymore, it will always be Eddie's Island. He saw all the two-bit real estate explorers doing their thing, and he felt, you know, that was the Canadian way. Why shouldn't he do it? I think they were threatened by him. I think they were threatened by his style, his, his manner of presentation. Uh, the way he seemed to operate. I think nuisance to the community. Uh, he was larger than life. He was a thorn in their sides. He interrupted their visual uh, notions of what the, the, the calm lake should be. He, he danced naked in the sand. And uh, this the local people found offensive. He came to Canada as Mohamed Yamour, a 24-year-old Lebanese immigrant with $17 in his pocket and not a word of English. With a job in a barber shop and lessons from the Fred Astaire Dance School, he became Eddie Haymore, prosperous and popular citizen of Edmonton. Eddie did well in the free enterprising spirit of 1950s Alberta, and in time, had a shopping center, a string of barber shops, and a closet full of tuxedos. He married his Canadian sweetheart and had four children. Eddie Haymore's proudest achievement was the $3,000 citizenship party he threw in 1960. 250 of the best people in Edmonton attended. Cabinet ministers, the mayor, even Alberta's lieutenant governor toasted the new Canadian who had done so well in so short a time. Eddie celebrated the country he had joined, 
remembered the land he had left. 25 years later, in British Columbia's Okanagan Valley, Eddie Haymore, now 52, and not quite as dashing, still hasn't forgotten Lebanon. Tonight he's just having fun. But there was a time when Eddie wanted to make the Middle East a permanent part of this Canadian valley. Eddie Haymore came to the Okanagan in 1970 and fell in love with the rugged hills and clear blue waters that reminded him of Lebanon. Here he found Rattlesnake Island, five acres of rock and scrub, but to Eddie, the site of his dream, a Middle Eastern amusement park. Within months, he'd bought the island and was promoting his plan on open line radio shows and at the Chamber of Commerce, and he'd started to build. Everything from a miniature Taj Mahal to a three-story camel. Where are you going to put the camels? Oh, <laughs> the camels, everybody says the camels, is, is really a cement structure of camel. A cement made out of cement. Where and, was that going to be? It could be in front of the pyramid there and have uh, 39 flavor of ice cream for the kids in his tummy. So the children climb into his tummy and uh, peek in from his eyes and with the reverse telescope. Even they have the music in his mouth and even the garbage disposal in uh, his rear end. You know, it's something that for adults to laugh at and for the kids to enjoy. Was this the clever businessman in you who saw he could make a good profit? No, no, I wasn't for a profit. I, I, want, I want a pleasure and I want a heritage, and I want children of mine to enjoy the two cultures, my own and my children as a Canadian culture. Moroccan Shadu, he called it, a fantastic desert village with lake barges and a miniature golf course with mosques, minarets, and fountains. There would be a bakery and a pyramid and an ice cream camel. Even Ogopogo, the local lake monster, would have a place. To Eddie Haymore, it was a vision from the Arabian Nights. Come on. More like Coney Island, says Des Lone, a high school English teacher and potter in the orchard town of Peachland near Kelowna. His property overlooks Rattlesnake Island. And back in 1971, he felt strongly enough about Eddie's idea to run for alderman. He first met Haymore at a local meeting and suspected Eddie had his eye more on profit than pleasure. He came here in a zoot suit right out of Alcap, and uh, he introduced himself to the audience as, I'm Eddie Haymore. I want you to remember that as more hay, more hay. That is more hay for you, more hay for me. We are in this together, and I'm, I'm here to make it for you. That's what he said. And you thought? I thought, how ridiculous can you get? That is, I thought, here we are <laughs> with another exploiter. So basically, you're telling me you don't like his manner. He was pushy, and he had bad taste in clothes. Good, uh, that's that's three, three parts of the operation so far. Uh, that's a reason? Uh, uh, no, let's go, to num him? let's go to number four. But in fact, these are all things that add up to a threat to the way of life of Peachland. 
Peachland's quiet and prolific vineyards and orchards weren't ready for Eddie Haymore's flamboyant style and boundless imagination. The amusement parks that now dot the valley hadn't yet been built. On the island, there had never been any development. The local parks committee worried about green belts and natural order. Others whispered about belly dancers and gambling casinos. But it was Des Lone's letter to the MLA for Peachland, who also happened to be Premier W.A.C. Bennett, that really got things rolling. If, in fact, this lake is going to be spread over with O. Henry chocolate bar wrappers and dirty divers and everything else that's going to come from transporting 600 people a day back and forth there, then that's uh, pretty disgusting considering the beautiful place that we have to live in. And if, if we don't respect that beautiful place and, and fight for it, then we don't have it. Eddie Haymore was quick to start building on his Arabian Isle. Just as quickly, the Ministry of Municipal Affairs sent Haymore a telegram telling him he had to apply for a building permit. That was even before there was a regulation passed requiring such a permit. That came just before another regulation. The one classifying Haymore's five-acre rock pile as suitable only for forestry and grazing. From that point on, the battle lines were drawn. Eddie Haymore determined to create his mecca on the Okanagan, and the government just as determined to stop him. My first impression uh, when I had to deal with government departments was that um, they had possibly classified Mr. Haymore as somewhat of a threat. Engineer Gordon Brookfield tried to help with a required sewage permit. He came up with a system he knew would work, but local authorities turned it down. And at that point in time, I advised Mr. Haymore that he did not need an engineer at this point in time. He needed a lawyer. What was their problem? Was it, the, was it disposal sewage or was it Eddie Haymore? In hindsight, I think something was happening in other areas in the government, which was a gang up on Eddie Haymore. Gang up or not, Eddie kept going. Even a government lawsuit on Haymore's violation of building regulations had been unsuccessful. And in the summer of 1972, Eddie opened for one day. 700 people turned out, but a government official spoiled it all. He told Haymore he didn't have a permit to take people across the lake, and he wasn't going to get one. That's a beautiful island over there, you can see, and I don't see how any development tourist development over there could interfere with anyone on the mainland here. Former Peachland Mayor Harold Thwaite says Eddie's scheme was just a little ahead of its time. He doesn't think the government should have stopped Eddie because of the opposition of a handful of people. What I uh, did not like, and uh, I'm a card-carrying life member of the Social Credit Party, I was a very good friend of W.A.C. Bennett, and I'm a good friend of the premier today. What I did not like was that when Mr. Haymore, when Eddie Haymore bought that island, it had no zoning. He bought it under the conditions he could develop it in whichever way he wanted. But when they got this opposition, then the government changed the zoning and ruled that it was to be zoned uh, forestry and grazing. Now, there's no way you can grow a tree on that island, and it's five acres. There's no way you can graze on a lot of solid rock. Ray Williston was Minister of Lands. He says no matter what the rules were, Eddie Haymore refused to play by them. He really conducted business as though he was still in his native land and didn't acknowledge that there were different rules and regulations persisting in Canada. And he 
wasn't a very quick learner, nor did he want to learn. So he wanted to adapt us to his way rather than he adapt to our way. Well, the various government memos that were circulated at the time indicate the government wanted to stop Eddie Haymore. For example, this one, October the 15th, 1971, and this was sent to you, Mr. Williston, says, I quote, it's believed development had been stopped through the cooperation of the Departments of Health, Municipal Affairs, Water Resources, Highways, etc. Another memo dated February 72. It was a confidential memo stating government wished to prevent development of Rattlesnake Island. That's right. That, that's right. And they issued these uh, orders and so on and assumed they were going to be carried out. He, he paid no attention to them at all, kept right on building as though it was his land and uh, away you go. And sooner or later that uh, when he got it completed, uh, the only thing the public could do was to approve what he had already finished. And that's completely wrong. But Eddie Haymore never did finish. By the summer of 1973, his $150,000 Arabian village was abandoned. The only visitors were vandals. He was broke and alone. His wife and children had left him and returned to Alberta. Eddie stayed here in Kelowna. The story might have ended there, but he started making threats against those who had stood in the way of his dream. He talked of high jackings and bombings to a man he thought was a friend. Haymore now says it was all just talk, but his friend, who was an RCMP informer, felt differently, especially after Eddie returned from a trip to Lebanon to get help. I said to him in these words, great, I have, I brought with me six letter bombs. So that's the biggest mistake I, I have made. I should have said six letter as strong as a bomb. In reality, I have six letters written from heads of government in support of me. He was arrested and sent to Ocala prison for psychiatric assessment. Only one of 37 charges came to trial, with the Crown trying to prove he was not guilty by reason of insanity. During the trial, Haymore sold his island to the government for only $40,000, thinking he might be released, but he was found not guilty by reason of insanity for the possession of brass knuckles. Brass knuckles, yes, aluminum brass knuckles would not fit the adult's hands. For children, I bought it for my boy, I bought two of them, two for a dollar. For the possession of brass knuckles, they found you not guilty by reason of insanity? Yes. What happened to you? Sent me to crazy house for additional 11 months. Haymore's lawyer was Sidney Simons. The trial was decided upon the basis of what would best suit the needs, the immediate needs of the community, not the legality or illegality or sanity or insanity of Eddie Haymore or his acts. But that seemed to be the one, the, the avenue, I think, that uh, gave the greatest hold on him with the possibility that he might be detained there for a long, long time. After the trial, Eddie Haymore was sent to Riverview Mental Hospital. Angry, bitter, and frustrated at the loss of his family and his island, he planned how he would get them back. Beirut, the fall of 1975, raging civil war. Haymore came here after his release from the psychiatric hospital. 
got an apartment across the street from the Canadian Embassy and started watching. Four months later, he rounded up four of his cousins. Armed with AK-47 machine guns and grenades, they walked into the embassy. Alan Sullivan, now ambassador to Austria, was the chargé d'affaires. Well, when I arrived in the reception area, there were the various visitors to the embassy and all of my staff uh, on the floor and uh, several gunmen, including Eddie, uh, holding them hostage. Three stories below, alarms spread in the streets. Inside the embassy, Haymor demanded his children and his island be returned. The moment was, was rather tense because uh, you had a variety of militia groups which had taken up positions outside the embassy. Uh, I can't recall exactly how many, but there were, there were several. Uh, I kept receiving telephone calls from a Syrian colonel who was trying somehow to keep peace uh, between these rival factions, uh, telling me to wind this thing up as quickly as possible because otherwise the Lebanese war was going to break out around the Canadian embassy. Eight hours later, a deal was struck and the hostages were released. The federal government would try to help Haymore. They returned him to Canada. No charges were laid. Eddie had taken over the embassy, but as I understand it, he had not committed a crime in Canada. And for him to, to be jailed or whatever for, for, uh, for the incident would have required the Lebanese authorities to take action. In the confused circumstances of the time, it's not uh, unseemly or, or surprising that, that uh, nothing was done. Going to Lebanon and holding up a Canadian embassy, holding people hostage, that is not a rational thing to do. What is it? What can you do? If someone took your pride, your f children, your earning, your soul, your body, store it away for 20 months, and for no absolute reason. Eddie Haymore claims he's still trying to find the reason. For its part, the British Columbia government maintains it acted fairly. Five years ago, Haymore sued them to get more money for the island. The case has not yet made it to court. In the meantime, Eddie's built a new life in Peachland. He's remarried and has a young daughter, but still won't let go of the island. When you came back here on the bus, it was certainly a, under different circumstances when you came five years before a prosperous man with connections from Edmonton. Very, very different, isn't it? Well, I came on the bus to seek my right. I, if I didn't have a bus fare, I would walk to seek my right. Can you tell me what you're going to do? Keep fighting. I must have my right. How can I stop? How? To live without right, don't live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're about to drop Africa right now. And like I said, dropping Africa is the beginning of the end. Of the world as you know it. It's the end of the world as you know it. Now, I have said many, many times, I think it was way before anyone, you know, we, we got to keep an eye on China. 
obviously our president, China, 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 China. China was very pissed about all these sanctions. And for years, I've been telling you how, hey, you know, China owns a lot of ports. China is in, you know, the southern part of Africa. China has developed, na 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 na. Showed you how Mondi was like, holy crap, I got to make these Indian pearls across and kind of catch up and get into Africa. Remember how Ilhan Omar signed her divorce decree from Burkina Faso, and you're going to be like, what's going on? Well, what if, well, you put everything in context. We created China. We created them by putting out an embargo on the weapons, the same way we destroyed the Balkan region. Embargo on weapons. We're not helping people. The same thing we did in Africa. Embargo on weapons, so we can't help people. Embargo, embargo. Yeah, we're going to talk about it and see if we're going to give them weapons. Now we have Ukraine. We don't know where the weapons are going. Funny thing is, funny thing is, some of their drones and some of the shit that they're supposedly sending to Ukraine are going to another continent all together and then you have to wonder what's going on here wait a minute and they're setting the mediterranean on fire too <laughs> and that new base so weird so so weird get the greeks on their heels huh because they know that when it comes down to it they're not going to sit there but what are you talking about well russia 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 and the winner of calling all this shit is President Donald J. Trump. He called it. China, 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 Tory, stop. No, no, no. Really? Well, how's we take a look at news from many, many years ago? Let me see, where can I start? Because while everyone was sleeping and Obama was busy going through his apology tour, do you remember that apology tour where he bowed down to everyone, okay? Remember that? Mm. Oh, man. Can't wait to impeach his ass. Now, how is this working? Well, let's see. During Obama's time, there were a lot of things in the news, like this. A poor landlocked country with uranium deposits. A poor landlocked country with uranium deposits began pumping oil in 2011. But output has so far mostly been used for domestic refinery co-owned by CNPC and the government. CNPC is already pumping oil in the Agadem block. Government spokesperson Maru Amadu says the second phase involves 59 wells with an expected 1 billion barrels of oil. He added that the new development will allow the country to export between 60,000 and 80,000 barrels per day. The government announcement suggests that results could be much bigger than the previous estimate of 650 million barrels. Niger signed an agreement with Cameroon in September to export oil via a new link to the existing Cameroon Chad pipeline. Street vendors. Did you catch that? That was China's oil refinery that was built in Niger and Chad over a decade ago right right like no one paid attention wait let's go back to the sahel region and see what else china created here's a quick 38 second clip can't have a lot of this stuff out 38 seconds that's all you get Mali has signed an agreement with the China Railway Construction Corporation to renovate its rail line linking its capital, Bamako, to the border with neighboring Senegal. The rail will cost nearly 2 billion U.S. dollars. 
The project is part of a plan to upgrade the aging 1,200-kilometer railway between Senegal's coastal capital Dakar and landlocked Mali. China Railway Construction also penned a similar agreement worth $1.26 billion with Senegal on Thursday. The work on the Malian section of the project will include upgrading 644 kilometers of rail lines and renovating 22 railway stations. Niger, Chad, Nigeria, Burkina Faso, and Mali. All of them working with China. It's so bizarre isn't it? And the Sahel region, Sahel, Sahel, to be pronounced correctly, right? Well, that was pretty much for what? Oh, that's right. Oh, wait, what? What? What is it that it was? Oh, wait, let's look what else China has done. <laughs> let's look at Burkina Faso. I mean, you know, not like we created China or anything. Burkina Faso now. China has announced it will build a $140 million hospital in Ouagadougou. It follows the recent opening of a Chinese embassy in the West African country. China is also planning to build a new highway connecting the capital and the second city of Boba Diolasso. The $1.3 billion project is expected to get underway in January 2019. In Africa between 2016 and 2018, China has reached more than 30 billion invested today. I could say that it has helped Africa to cope with a number of situations. As for the China-Africa Forum, our African heads of state are in a spirit of cooperation and good relations with China. The goal for them is to strengthen the relationship between Africa and China on the one hand and on the other hand to negotiate the transfer of technology and also see other investments that can be consolidated at a national level. What we hope for is that the leaders take into account the real concerns of our peoples so that by negotiating all that will be provided benefit the development of Africa. China has been Africa's largest partner for nine consecutive years. China's investment in Africa has grown rapidly under the Belt and Road Initiative in China and has gradually developed a diversified investment model through assistance, project procurement, investment cooperation and funding expansion. Many key investment projects have made positive progress. For some time, China has invested heavily on the continent through aid and loans. Today, China has become the leading investor in Africa. By listening to the public decision makers as a whole, this investment is very much appreciated, especially since it is money that Africans could not have had elsewhere at a lower cost. Most of the aid that was traditionally directed to Africa was conditional and often at fairly high rates, apart from public aid or the International Monetary Fund, which, however, have rather restrictive conditions. Chinese public investment is appreciated because it provides greater flexibility to the government. In addition, this aid makes it possible to build heavy infrastructure that was difficult to fund internally with private banks. That's so interesting. Wait, because they didn't know it's coming. It's not like AFRICOM. It's not like AFRICOM is on alert or anything. You know, it's totally not. 
you know, it's not. And then you'd be like, wow, China's working with Burkina Faso? You mean where Ilhan Omar went and signed her, you know, divorce decree? Burkina Faso that was created by Peter Strzok's daddy and Barack Hussein Obama's mommy is now under Chinese control? Well, how did that happen? I mean, we're pro-Taiwan, right? Totally. Totally pro-Taiwan. Well, that was a quick one. So China opened up an embassy prior to them, you know, investing in Burkina Faso, because you must, you must. But no one saw this coming. This is completely, you know, blindsiding them all. <laughs> Here's a report from a year ago from a Chinese diplomat, Chinese diplomat, monitoring Burkina Faso. So the Chinese already knew this was coming, the coup, the coalition, and you need to, well, let's just watch this quickly. This will maybe help bring more context to Africa. And the Sahel region, the Sahel region, is almost like the 45th degree of the Korean Peninsula. This Dahel region is almost like they're trying to cut a portion of Africa where they can keep instability to keep both sides quiet. The Southern and obviously the Northern. Northern Africa is a is prime freaking real estate. We've gone over this with the Silk Road and the railroads and da da da, you know, and here I am mouthing it off. Hey, this is really important. We should be paying attention to this. China, 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 China. But this is where the fall of Barack Hussein Obama carrying the torch for the legacy they wanted. Well, here's where it gets blown out. Uh, Dandi 今天中午他们可能会在当地电视台发表声明，要求总统离职。La dégradation continue de la situation sécuritaire. Qui menace les fondements même de notre nation, de l'incapacité manifeste du pouvoir de M. Rock Marc Christian Kabore à unir les Burkinabés pour faire face efficacement à la situation 
Et suite à l'exaspération des différentes couches sociales de la nation, le mouvement patriotique pour la sauvegarde et la restauration MPSR a décidé d'assumer ses responsabilités devant l'histoire, la communauté nationale et internationale. Le mouvement qui regroupe toutes les composantes des forces de défense et de sécurité a ainsi décidé de mettre fin au pouvoir de M. Rockmark Christian Caboret ce 24 janvier 2022。从社会面上看，现在整个的市市面上、街道上都还比较平静，没有发生骚乱，没有发生打砸抢烧等行为。呃，整个的现在这两天呢，也没有听说有人员伤亡的消息。呃，我们也是。密切的关注，我们在部中资机构侨民的人身安全。呃，目前了解的情况看，呃，现在的一些情况没有对我们的人员带来冲击。我们的在部的侨民大概五百多五百人左右啊，都还安全的状态。呃，我们也在继续和他
very big issue here, China. And I'm going to show you because China just took advantage of putting us in a box. Oh, no, Tori, that didn't happen. Wait, you'll see. See, something people weren't paying attention to is that six months ago, Chinese, the 10th Chinese peacekeeping guard contingent to Mali received a batch of new mine resistant ambush tools. What? Mine resistant ambush? What, what is going on here? And what do you mean the 10th? Well, what do we say? I mean, I never thought I'd see the day the UN would consider the Chinese, China, 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 peacekeepers, like the fuck, in Mali, the fuck. What's going on here? Are we all being punked? We make those MRAPs and now we see Chinese flag. Sounds like the UN system has been taken over. Totally sounds like that. The Western nations have just about fallen. So the question is, will we tumble and fall as well? What? Wait, what? No, that's not what happened. Oh, yes, it is. Here is some news. We正在密切关注尼日尔的形势发展，也注意到非盟和西非国家经济共同体做出的有关表态。中方呼吁尼日尔相关方从国家和人民的根本利益出发，通过对话、和平解决分歧，尽快恢复正常秩序，维护国家
because this is how giants fall. The revolution, a global one that obviously is not really televised and no one's really paying attention. And this is why I said when Africa comes into focus, it's the beginning of the end. And here it is. And I'm going to showcase that to you. Africa. Niger has become a critical U.S. ally in the Sahel region, which has seen recent military coups in Mali and Burkina Faso. In 2019, the U.S. opened a new drone base in uh, the capital of Agadez. The U.S. also has about 800 military personnel in Niger. The U.S. military presence in Niger made headlines in 2019. In 2017, when four U.S. special forces and five soldiers from Niger were killed in an ambush. Niger also remains one of the poorest nations in the world. In the United Nations Development Program's most recent Human Development Index, Niger ranks 189th of 191 countries, with only neighboring Chad and nearby newly formed war-ravaged South Sudan below it. 80 percent of Niger lies within the Sahara Desert. Life expectancy is only 60 years old, and the mean education level for its 25 million citizens is only two years. Secretary of State Blinken arrived in Niger after a trip to Ethiopia, which we'll talk about later in the program. But we'll begin now with two guests. Here in New York, Stephanie Sable is with us, a co-director of Let's begin with Stephanie Sable. Um, if you can start off by talking about Niger right now, why you believe Secretary of State uh, in the first Secretary of State visit to uh, Niger is there. What is the U.S. interest in Niger? Yeah, this is a really significant visit. Um, it is a significant moment. France has just recently pulled out of neighboring Burkina Faso. Um, so it's a moment when uh, Western powers are kind of figuring out what the... Did you hear that? That the French pulled out of Burkina Faso six months ago. Pay attention. Six months ago, the French pulled out of Burkina Faso you know, in 2022, when they removed their guy. Well, the guy the U.S. had in place. Next steps are in the region. Niger is one of the last strongholds of U.S. security partnerships in the region, um, which is increasingly spiraling into violence and chaos, um, led by some of militant groups affiliated with al-Qaeda and ISIS. And the U.S. sees Niger as one of its strongest allies in this region, which um, the U.S. positions as really one, one of the latest fronts in the ongoing post-9-11 wars, what, what George W. Bush called the war on terror. Uh, contrary to what many Americans think, this war is ongoing, and this is one of the latest fronts. And this visit to Niger is really a signal of, in, in part, how important strategically uh, Niger is for the United States. Stephanie, could you uh, explain uh, the context of this? Uh, how is it that not just Niger, but the broader Sahel region uh, became such a focus for the U.S., and why the global war of, on terror now appears to be concentrated there, with a large number of uh, terrorist incidents, according to the Global Terrorism Index, almost 50 percent of all terrorist uh, terrorism-related deaths occurred in the Sahel region last year. 
That's right. Yeah, the region be began kind of spiraling into cycles of violence in 2012, uh, really in 2012, although a little bit before then, um, when Mali was politically destabilized in the north. Um, rebels that were formerly fighting for Gaddafi in Libya uh, looted his weapons stocks and came down into Mali, where there was a separatist movement. Um, and this, this uh, has led to kind of this spiraling cycle in which um, these militant groups have been gaining ground. Governments in the region, aided by uh, U.S. training, assistance, funding, equipment, have been really waging their own wars on terror. And this violence, the government-sponsored violence, has been one of the factors that's contributed to these intensifying uh, spirals of violence. So people, it's, you know, blowback, right? So a lot of, a lot of recruitment to these militant groups uh, is coming in retaliation against uh, government forces that in some cases are indiscriminately um, targeting certain ethnic groups. Um, and uh, so it, it's, it's really one of these situations where there's a lot of poverty, there's a lot of corruption, people feel abandoned by the central governments. Uh, the government is responding with force, um, and these situations are just getting worse and worse. Uh, Kumba Turi, if you could also uh, respond to uh, Secretary of State uh, Blinken's visit to Niger and to the region, uh, the first of a Secretary of State, an American Secretary of State to the region, the significance of the visit uh, and what you'd like to see come out of it. Thank you so much for, for having me here. Um, the first thing that I would say is that um, there is definitely a, a shift uh, that, is, that is needed in, in relationship between you know, the U.S. <clears throat> and African, African countries. And I, and I see that you know, with this visit and before the meeting where the different leaders of African country were invited here in the U.S., that is clearly uh, where, where we're, we're going. But the truth is, in this region, um, everyone comes for their own interests, in the U.S. included. Uh, people are there for, um, you know, the natural resources. People are there for political influence. And um, different uh, nations elbowing each other for power uh, with total disregard uh, to the people who live on those on, on those land, uh, I, I believe for for new relationship to really shape uh, Africa needs to be looked at as a continent where there are human beings, not just a place where um, you know uh, it's for for power gain and 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 for uh, exploitation. Uh, Kumbatori, if you can talk about the issues that are. Um, being faced by the continent, how you see the Ukraine war affecting them, uh, issues from energy transition uh, to global health, um, and how this visit in the Sahel region, and also the proliferation of small arms uh, across the region, uh, the increase in uh, smuggling, trafficking of small arms, and whose hands those arms are falling into, the various armed groups that are uh, fighting uh, in the region now, and the role of the U.S. 
Right. So there are lots of countries in um, in the West African Sahel region who are involved in training Nigerian forces and providing uh, what they call security assistance. Um, the Germans and French and uh, <coughs> Italians. Um, there are also concerns about the the Russian Wagner Group that is um, spreading in influence, particularly in Mali, and there are rumors that it might be gaining a little bit of influence in uh, Burkina Faso, and they've been accused of committing atrocities in the Malian war on terror. Um, so it, it's really surprising. When I was in the airport in uh, in Niamey, which is the capital of Niger, um, and, you know, and, and Agadez, which is, as you mentioned, where the U.S. Um, drone base is based, uh, a couple some hundreds of miles into the desert to the north, um, you you see you know you see foreigners around. There's just a very I've I've been working in West Africa for um, 20 years and and I've never seen so many kind of um, Western military types contractors and things. The U.S. says it has about 800 soldiers posted in Niger, but that's doesn't convey at all the the kind of numbers of contractors who are coming in to do trainings and um, and the numbers of uh, of special forces operations like the people who are coming in and out um, so it's really a, a significant operation it's significant um, in, for for other countries as well um, Germany included and uh, and others um, and this region, as you were as you were mentioning, has become a um, a hub for illicit trafficking, not just of small arms, but also drugs and and people. There's a big um, uh, migrants uh, smuggling route uh, in the desert of Niger. So it's it's a it's a central point in the desert. You can you can picture um, Agadez, where we were, was this, for hundreds of years, has been this trading post between coastal West Africa and the desert to the north. Um, and so it's it's been really important on trade routes for centuries. Um, and now a, a lot of what's going on is that these um, militant groups who are, um, are saying that they're affiliated with uh, the Islamic State and al-Qaeda um, are essentially a lot of people are saying you know these these guys are are, are bandits they're they're criminals who are um, kind of donning the mantle of the this you know so-called terrorism to uh, to smuggle these goods and and profit I wanted to ask you professor Savell in a moment we're going to be talking about this 20th anniversary of the US invasion of Iraq which really began uh, with um, the Bush administration. Grab your dinars. Grab your dinars. Now, this is all fine and dandy. But what we need to remember is this region is the Sahel region. And it's kind of just a strip across the, the thickest part of the continent. And it's so incredible to see because no one talked about, you know, ECOWAS, right? And it's quite fascinating because, you know, just as they thought that, hey, Niger could do what they want, but we're going to take it out and we're going to fix it our way and we're going to do it our way, you know, because that's the hell region is where all the terrorism is sequestered. That's where the Al-Qaeda's are. 
That's where they mobilize everyone. Let's see what the Germans have told us about this. This is the home of the Dogon, an ethnic group indigenous to eastern Mali. Steep cliffs dominate the landscape. Villages were carved out of the rock here in the 15th century. A decade ago, this area was the top tourist destination in Mali, but ever since 2016, jihadists have wielded control in the region. This area is now the most dangerous in the country. Neither the Malian nor French military has a presence here. Armed men at security checkpoints like this are a rare sight. This is for our protection because there's no army here. Our driver, Modibo, knows his way around the area. He used to drive tourists here. How's your family? All is well, thanks. Thank God. These civilians patrol the entrance to the Dogon territory. We've passed several checkpoints along the way. Jihadists are constantly trying to infiltrate the area, so every vehicle is searched. Only local residents are allowed to pass through. We're now in Songo. There's a training camp for hunters here. They're training right now, here. These men are dressed in the traditional uniform of the dozo, a secretive brotherhood of initiated hunters and warriors. Armed with knives and old hunting rifles, the men are highly respected in the area. They wear amulets believed to have magical powers that make them invisible and even bulletproof. The Dozo have formed a militia. Many in the village have joined the Dozo to fight the jihadists. The Dozo are part of the most powerful militia in the region, Danambasagu, with about a thousand soldiers. Their leader is Yusuf Tolo. I'm sorry, I don't know how they're super powerful when they can't stand information properly. They have a shit ton of amulets and rings, which are a problem to fight. And they got these jelly shoes from the 80s. It seems like, you know, some person donated it. It looks so bad. And the guy dropped his weapon as he's turning around. I mean, come on, uh, stop. At least make it more believable. We should get into the good parts. Let's see. Like, Right over here. There we go. This is the good part. It's a strategic place of trade between northern and southern Mali. Since 2019, the river separates Mukti from jihadist-controlled areas. Trade between the two sides continues, although Sharia law is in full force on the other side. Now, when women cross the river, they must wear a black hijab. They face beatings. The punishment for stealing is losing a hand or a foot.
Four former jihadists who used to live across the river agreed to meet with us. All four are Fulani and say they joined the jihadists because they were persecuted. This former herder says his village was invaded by the Malian army and attacked by Dozo hunters. They say that all Fulani are jihadists, but that's not true. They attack our villages, killing women, small children, two or three-year-olds who can't defend themselves, and even old women who can't use a gun. Were any of your relatives killed? Yes. Those who sign up to fight must acquire their own weapon and motorcycle. Some spend up to 1,800 euros on gear. They force you to hold your hands like this while praying. Were you asked to convert to Salafism? Mm -hmm. Yes, I myself and Maliki. They wanted me to convert, but I refused, so I left the group. Malikism has been practiced here for centuries. Unlike Salafism, it advocates a tolerant reading of the Quran. Salafism was brought to Mali in the 1980s by preachers from the Gulf nations. These four men were disappointed the jihadist life wasn't what they'd envisioned, so they returned home to live alongside their former neighbors of various ethnicities. When I returned home, the Dogon were initially scared of me. But after some time, my neighbors were no longer afraid. They now look at me as if I did nothing wrong. They've gotten used to me. The Fulani and the Dogon will always need each other. To cultivate the fields, to build houses, to dig wells. That's what the Dogon do best. Livestock farming is the Fulani expertise. Hundreds of thousands of Fulani have left central Mali due to persecution, especially by Malian soldiers. Some have found refuge in neighboring countries, including in Mauritania, the most stable state in the Sahel. Some 67,000 people live in the Mbera refugee camp. Most of them are Tuareg who fled jihadists in northern Mali in 2012. The newest arrivals, however, are all Fulani. Like Chief Bergiso, a year ago he fled his village after being threatened by a Malian soldier. The soldier said to me, I swear to you, I will not say it twice. I heard the Fulani are killing us. Jihadists are killing us, so we're going to kill all the Fulani. I called someone at the judicial district. He told us to stay home and no one would hurt us. But no officials took his calls for help seriously. The military returned to the village the next Friday. First, they surrounded us. That was between 1 and 2 p.m. Then they invaded the village. They attacked everyone there. They went into the rooms and dragged sick people out of their homes. They killed seven people. The Fulani were terrified. Bergi helped send 1,000 families to Mauritania. People live in peace here. I thank God for that. Right now, I wouldn't even go back if they chartered a plane. We'll never forget what they did to us. 
On this day, the Mauritanian army destroy four jihadist trucks. Hold on, I'll shoot the fourth one. Don't let it escape. Don't worry, I won't. Mauritania's ground troops have also been restructured. In 2009, the state formed a special intervention group, units specializing in counter-terrorism. Eight units of 200 men each guard the border with Mali. Attention! Are you ready to fight? To your posts. This platoon of 80 soldiers sets out on a three-day patrol. Their trucks are fitted with heavy machine I can't, guns. I can't, I can't. It looks like a bad... It, it, I'm sorry. I stopped it with the screaming. I just can't. It looked like a bad boot camp video. You know. But who created the Islamic terror belt there? Who destroyed Sudan? Mali Fee. Who created Burkina Faso? the Strzok legacy and the Obama legacy. And how hard had they tried to hold on to it? But this has a big implication for us. While you think it's just Africa, by the end of the show today, you're going to see just how big of a problem we have as an America. Now, here's another PBS <laughs> report that has gotten very few views for for four days with 3.7 million subscribers and haven't been hearing much of any of this on any conservative or liberal mainstream. No one's talking about this. It's not on TikTok. I need to get my own to my alt account and do that. The coup in Niger has effects on us and you're going to see how now we have a shortage, don't we? Don't we have a shortage on semiconductors? Don't we have a shortage on gallium and germanium? I mean, this is going to hurt Elon, too. Wait, no, we don't? Oh, well, now we do. ...in the African nation of Niger. The U.S. denounced the coup and has long counted Niger as a partner in the fight against insurgents there. And across the region, also known as the Sahel, Stephanie Sai has the latest. While the democratically elected president of Niger remains captive in the presidential palace, his supporters were out in force. We are going just to show all these military people that they just, just take shortcuts and take the power like this. No. We are a democratic country. We support democracy and we don't need this kind of uh, movement. But supporters of the military coup were also out, setting cars ablaze and burning and looting the ruling party's headquarters. Today, we believe that the army, by taking power, will create the conditions for the army to regain its former values. A group of soldiers appeared on national television yesterday, announcing the power grab and the removal of President Mohamed Bazoum. We, the Defense and Security Forces, have decided to put an end to the regime you know. This follows the continuing deterioration of the security situation and poor economic and social governance. The soldiers announcing the coup said they had dissolved the Constitution 
suspended all institutions and closed the nation's borders. On social media earlier today, President Bazoum vowed that the nation's hard-won gains toward democracy would be safeguarded. The army is supporting the coup plotters in its ranks. It says to avoid a deadly confrontation that could lead to bloodshed and jeopardize the security of the population. Niger has a long history of military coups, but in recent years, the country has grown more stable. The coup is the seventh in West and Central Africa since 2020. For more on the latest developments in Niger, we are joined by Kamisa Kamara. She previously served as the Malian Minister of Foreign Affairs and is now senior. I'm sorry. Did they say all of this happened after 2020? You mean the minute they removed President Trump, all hell broke loose in Africa? <laughs> because the Chinese made sure that this would occur. It's to their benefit. And now the French. I wonder where Macron is. Probably sitting somewhere with his tail between his legs. So interesting. Let's listen to this expert. Advisor for Africa in the U.S. Institute of Peace. Thank you so much for joining the news hour. I want to jump right in. What are your sources saying? And please remember that it was the U.S. Institute of Peace leaders that trained all your Sunrise Movement, Antifa's momentum, and all these stupid little factions that gave America the summer of love. And it looks like this person representing the U.S. And what did they call it? The democratic values that the U.S. seeks to instill on other nations, right? Well, well, let's just pay attention. Let's just see how this year of the R's is retribution. Ah, here we go. And how are they describing what is going on in Niger right now? Well, there has been a, a definite development from uh, yesterday where we still thought that President Mohamed Bazoum could be um, kept in power. Uh, there were still um, parts of the military who were still loyal to him and the, the ones who wanted to, um, to conduct the, the coup were isolated. Um, in the early hours of the day uh, today, the uh, head of the army joined the putschists and an announcement, a public announcement was made um, confirming that President Mohamed Bazoum had been removed from power, that borders were closed, and that the constitution was suspended. Almost sounds like the military was the only way to fix this, because the military is the only way. So now you have to think, back in early 2020, what were those people discussing in their signal chats, their slacks, their Zoom calls? Coo, 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 coo. So if the military is the only way, and we've been seeing that unfold globally, well, 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 what do we have here? Um, so I think it is a successful coup, uh, unfortunately, and this is the fix that Niger has known since um, the 1960s. 
U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has called for the coup leaders to release President Bazoum. He was also notably careful not to call it a coup. Um, as you know, the U.S. and France both have security partnerships with Niger's government to try and contain terrorist groups there. How does this change things? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't change uh, much. It just prevents uh, the U.S. from cutting uh, all assistance uh, to, uh, to Niger. If the, Niger. if the United States were to call the Niger event a military coup, then automatically uh, all assistance would be, would be stopped. And I think it's also, it also shows that uh, Niger is still, as of today, an important security partner that the United States might want to keep a door um, open to conduct uh, business with uh, uh, the Nigerian authorities. We've completely lost our foothold in Africa, and the Chinese have swooped right in. Niger sounds like Tarjay, right? Tarjay. Tarjay. But we thought we would be able to hold on to him, and maybe he would stay in power. No, 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 you did not. You did not. Because the, the, the whole bottom line is here, we have people that have no complete and utter understanding of foreign policy and geostrategic positioning. African establishment. Huh. Remember how they took out Gaddafi? We came, we saw, he died. So what is really happening? What is happening at the moment? There is an interim president right now. His name is Ibrahim Traore. And he recent, recently shattered the stigma surrounding patriotic military coups during the second Russia-Africa summit. No, this is where Russia comes in. But wait, has nothing to do with Russia, even though they're hell-bent on Russia. He argued that such regime changes are sometimes necessary to combat Western-backed terrorism. He made this speech at the Russian-African summit. He criticized fellow leaders for their lack of support for these anti-imperialist movements, which he believes are in the best interest of all Africans. In his speech, Traore urged his peers to stop acting as puppets of imperialism. Despite the criticism he faced for leading a coup last year, he emphasized that it was done to bring security and development to his people. He highlighted the struggle of Burkina Faso. Remember when they outed him in 2022 and then this guy came in, right? He said, the struggle of Burkina Faso is against modern forms of slavery imposed by colonialism and imperialism. Traore expressed his disappointment at the imperialist labeling of those who take up arms to defend their homeland as armed groups of criminals, while similar actions in Europe are seen as patriotic. He called for African leaders to support their people in the fight against imperialism rather than dismissing them as criminals. His speech was a very powerful call to action for those seeking to break the chains of modern forms of slavery. Now, China, as we understand, has a severe involvement in the Sahel region of Africa, and it's multifaceted.
They have political involvement, where China has been building political ties with Sahel countries, often through economic partnerships and diplomatic engagements. It's positioned itself as a partner for development and offering alternative to West models of aid and development. You know, how I explained to you the IMF was ousted in certain areas. Remember when Greece was broke and they ran a GoFundMe and raised billions of dollars and no one gave it to them? Whatever happened to that many, I don't know. Where Greece was like, yeah, we're out of the EU and they all voted to get out, but somehow the vote to get out was actually to stay in. That was confusing. But in the end, they didn't take more loans. They sold one of the ancient ports of Greece, Piraeus port, to the Chinese for money. China is also involved in security in the Sahel region. It's limited, allegedly, but the UN has forfeited their blue helmets and their nice cars, right? Bulletproof cars to the Chinese. It has contributed, China has contributed troops to UN peacekeeping missions in the region because no one else can go. They'll kill them, right? They'll kill them. So the Chinese take advantage of it showing that they have an increased interest in regional security issues, particularly as they relate to protecting Chinese investments and citizens. As you heard from the political commentator saying, our 500 citizens in the area are just fine. They invested, they wanna make sure their investment sees profit and that their people are okay. On top of that, China has provided what one would say is humanitarian aid to the Sahel region, particularly in response to food security crises and health needs. But first and foremost, it's their economic involvement. China has significantly increased its economic presence in the Sahel over the past two decades. This is primarily through investments in infrastructure, mining, and oil exploration. The Belt and Road Initiative that I've been talking about for years is a global development strategy adopted by the Chinese government, which has extended to this region. Now, I want you to understand that um, President Traore of Burkina Faso, the new president, along with other African leaders, are asserting that the West is perpetuating a modern form of slavery in Africa through its hybrid wars, including the conflict in Burkina Faso. Traora, who came to power through a military coup, believes that the real struggle is against the West, not just terrorists. He has expressed extreme disappointment in his peers who condemned his coup, aligning with the wishes of imperialist forces. Traoré's perspective is that many African leaders, particularly in West African Sahel region, are puppets of imperialism. He clearly said puppets. This view was reinforced by the actions of the economic community of West African states, ECOWAS. So you know how they created an EU? Well, the West African states have their own economic zone too. And the the fact that they said that, um, you know, that Traoré said that they're puppets of imperialism was reinforced because it imposed sanction on Niger and threatened military force if the ousted President Mohamed Bazoum was not reinstated. Now, France and the U.S. are seen as forces working to keep Africa subordinate. 
and those two nations have condemned the coup in Niger. However, it's important to note that not all African leaders have succumbed to Western pressure as evidenced by their refusal to sanction Russia. So Western African leaders will not sanction Russia because the U.S. asked it. In fact, the alignment of views of West and, and most African of West and most African leaders on anti-imperialist coups may be more about self-preservation than puppetry, right? That these nations are just trying to preserve themselves and their leaders are. Yet the corruption and close ties with the West among the African establishment are undeniable and resented by the people they actually govern. And President Traore has broken the taboo on patriotic military coups, arguing that they are necessary to save their countries from Western-backed terrorism. I said this before. He criticized his peers who condemned the anti-imperialist actions. He stood up and said, you guys are all the Chinas. We've got China behind us. We can break this. And this is how China works. China's like, look, they're all bad. We're just giving you money. Look, we're building you up. We're giving you weapons. We're giving you food. Fuck the West. They just want you as slaves. And the West has been implementing modern form of slavery across the world, even within its own nation, under the guise of Social Security, of course. And, you know, that's another story. So it was really easy. You don't need to hijack their minds. They already know. They already know that the West has tried to keep them under their thumb, while the Chinese give them a facade of freedom. Now, the one thing about Africans is you can give them sticks and stones and they will fuck you up. I don't give a shit how many tanks and bombs you have. There will be that one dude that you forgot. You better make sure he's dead. This will not go over very well. Because the revolutionary changes in West Africa, specifically the Sahel region, with three regime changes since 2021, are accelerating multipolar processes in Africa. Traude's defense of patriotic military coups and condemnation of the African establishment could make him one of the most influential sorry, Africans in his time. And I think it's important that um, we kind of take a look and see how the Chad leader has just arrived to Niger after the coup. Le général Mahamat Idris Déby Itno a marqué un arrêt à Niamey au pied d'Alifou Modi, puis salué par quelques membres du Conseil national pour la sauvegarde de la patrie CNSP avant de la consacrer à la situation politique au Niger. Le président au salon de. Chad has entered the conversation, but so have the people of Niger who speak French, right? The people of Niger have taken over and burnt down the French embassy. Yes, that happened. Pretty crazy, right? Look at those protests. In the wake of a military coup that ousted country's president. Take a look.
pour dire à ce petit Macron de la France que le Niger nous appartient. C'est à nous de faire ce que nous voulons du Niger, ce que nous voulons, nous traitons avec qui nous voulons et comme nous voulons. In the event the authorities' demands are not met within one week, take all measures necessary to restore constitutional order in the Republic of Niger. Such measures may include the use of force. Well, 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 they said that the Western African nations said that they're not on their side. I call bullshit, and I'll show you how. But here's the first video image of the ousted president. Take a watch. We'll begin in West Africa, where the first image of Niger's ousted president, Mohamed Bazoum, has been published online after an attempted coup, showing the leader smiling broadly and appearing to be in good health. Niger's ousted president met with the president of neighboring Chad, Mohamed Idris Deby, who traveled to Niger as a diplomatic envoy. Meanwhile, the coup leaders who seized power last week in Niger have said the troubled government had authorized France to carry out an attack on the presidential palace to try to free President Mohamed Bazoum. Colonel Amadou Abdramani, one of the coup plotters, made the comment on Monday, adding that the authorization was signed by Foreign Minister Hasumi Masudu, acting as Prime Minister. France, Niger's former colonial ruler, has condemned the coup and urged President Bazoum to be reinstated, but has not announced any intention to intervene. Militarily. Niger remains on the edge of days after a military coup shock the African nation. Well, the ousted president, Mohamed Bassou, met with the uh, Chadian president. Uh, also, this while many international blocs are angered by the former French colony right now. So let's break this down or the details that's been happening over the last few days. So this was also the first public appearance by the president since being driven out of office. Now, the ousted leader could be seen smiling in the photos posted on Twitter. The Chadian president is in Niger to mediate between the coup leaders and the government. Now, the coup leaders have also managed to gather support from the Burkina Faso and Mali. The two nations, also under military leadership, have issued a warning stating that international military intervention in Niger will be seen and reacted to as a declaration of war. Meanwhile, France has denied all accusations of intervention of military uh, intervention in the former colony. The concern of the intervention was raised by the military leaders of the coup. Now, the French foreign ministry also dismissed accusations of its security forces using lethal means to respond to the military junta attack on the French embassy in Miami on Sunday. France's foreign ministry said the embassy was violently attacked by the prepared groups, which Niger's security forces did not fully bring under control. Now, it's said that contrary to what certain military officials say, no lethal means were used by the French security forces. Right, well, Niger's new junta has accused France of seeking a military intervention to reinstate deposed President Mohamed Bazoum. Now, Bazoum, a Western ally whose election just over two years ago now was a watershed in Niger's history. It was toppled on July 26 by the elite presidential guard. 
Now the Guard's Chief General, Abdu Ramin Jani, declared himself leader, but his claim has been shunned internationally and by the West African regional bloc, ECOWAS. Dans sa ligne de conduite allant dans le sens de la recherche des voies et moyens pour intervenir militairement au Niger, la France, avec la complicité de certains Nigériens, a tenu une réunion à l'état-major de la garde nationale du Niger pour obtenir des autorisations politiques et militaires nécessaires. On Niger's military junta forces arrested the ousted government's mines minister, the head of the ruling party and oil minister, Mahaman Sani Mahamadou. It has detained the interior minister, transport minister and the deputy. So yesterday I told you that the French were looking to come in and it was going to be a big shitstorm. Well, Burkina Faso and Mali said that they will be defending Niger from military intervention by the U.S. and the French. And please take a look at this segment from the summit. This latest development with the ECOWAS community of West African states is considering the use of we begin with this latest development where the ECOWAS community of West African states is considering the use of force to restore constitutional order in Niger Republic. At the ECOWAS Extraordinary Summit held in Abuja earlier today, President Bola Tinubu, who is the chairman of ECOWAS heads of states and government, described the coup in Niger Republic as an assault on ECOWAS. One of the resolutions made at the Extraordinary Session is the imposition of a no-fly zone on Niger Republic, and ECOWAS also warned the military junta that it will be held responsible for the safety of President Mahmoud Mohamed Bazoum and his family. The body ordered the relevant authorities to freeze financial assets of Niger Republic. One of us, His Excellency Mohamed Bazoum, is in hostage by so I'm sorry I had a pause I just wanted to show you what African establishment looks like so I wanted to pause on him because this is what he said and now you're going to see what the other ECOWAS states said this is where it all begins at the heart of Africa a presidential god What a calamity. It's an assault on every one of us. And we must take a very strong action. We want to protect the life of President Basum. Who's going to protect his life? Because the ECOWAS have, you know, very specific member states. That would be Benin, Ghana, Niger, Burkina Faso, Guinea, Nigeria, Cabo Verde, Guinea-Bissau, Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, Liberia, Sierra Leone, the Gambia, Mali, and Togo. Now here is what 
Mali and Burkina Faso have to say. In a move considered as a tactical way to defend the recent regime change in Niger, in a move considered as a tactical way to defend the recent regime change in Niger, Mali's military junta said Monday that they stand to support the core leaders in Niami. Mali said they stand together with Burkina Faso to defend Niger and further warned that any foreign military intervention with the Niami will be considered a declaration of war on both nations with Niger. The transitional governments of Burkina Faso and Mali, one, have expressed their fraternal solidarity of the people of Mali and Burkina Faso with their brothers in Niger who have decided of their own accord to take their destiny in hand and to assume their sovereignty. Two, denounce the persistence of the regional organizations to apply sanctions that aggravate the suffering of the population and imperil the spirit of Pan-Africanism. Three, refuse to apply these illegal, illegitimate and inhumane sanctions against the Nigerian people and authorities. Four, warn that any military intervention against Niger will be considered as a declaration of war against Burkina Faso and Mali. I repeat, four, warn that any military intervention against Niger will be considered as a declaration of war against Burkina Faso and Mali. The announcement was in response to the outcome of a summit by regional bloc SECOAS that gave a seven-day deadline to the Niger coup leaders to free and detain President Mohamed Bazoum. <laughs> okay, where are we at? What is going on? So now they're like, yo, if any American or French military decides to enter Niger, 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 is that where we're going to? Target? Um that that is a declaration of war on Burkina Faso and Mali. That's interesting. Because, you know, the BBC is freaking out. Three hours ago, they had this news segment. Wait, and then I'm going to show how Tony Blinken just up to a lot of Chinese shit. And that's how you're going to see how this cookie will crumble. Burkina Faso and Mali have issued a joint statement saying they'll regard any military intervention in Niger as a declaration of war on them. The two countries, which have also both seen recent military coups, said they would come to the defence of their eastern neighbour in such a scenario. It's after a West African bloc gave Niger's military seven days to give up power and threatened to use force if they didn't do so. Before that joint statement from Mali and Burkina Faso was released, Niger's ambassador to the US spoke to my colleague Sumi Somaskanda. This coup has really no reason whatsoever. There, is, there was no political tension. There is no situ security situation that is worsening, as they claimed, that just fails. The security situation is improving. Uh, in our country, you know, you accept to power by the ballot, not by the bullets. And we have elected a legitimate president, Mohamed Bazoum, and we want him to be restored, like all the international... Does anybody want to take a guess of how they did and conducted those elections? 
Somebody take a wild freaking guess on how they democratically elected with the ballots their alleged leader that only the French and the Americans, obviously the Western world is like, damn, the Germans are shutting the fuck up. And, you know, someone should think like, oh, I, I wonder what kind of machines did they use? Oh, my God. My favorite election theft, right? Hmm. Community, ECOWAS, the regional body, Africa Union, the United States of America, France, all our parts, the European Union, all are asking them just to give back power to present Basu. You mentioned ECOWAS. I do want to ask you, ECOWAS is the economic community of West African states, and they have threatened uh, military action. Would you welcome that, that West African states would stage a, a military intervention here? I would hope and wish a peaceful solution, that the junta will come to reason and give, up, give back power to President Bazoum and to the parliament mm. that were again elected in a fair and transparent election. But if that is not possible, I will not rule out any solution that will restore democracy in my country. Including a military intervention. Absolutely, I, I will not rule out any solution because... Uh-oh. 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 We know where he sits. We totally know where he sits. Election theft, my favorite. Stop counting in the middle of the night, and then we bring him up, and the U.S. and France are saying you need to give him back. In the meantime, other people are saying other things. So let me set this up with you so you can see it yourself. So, you know, Tony Blinken, which, by the way, I don't know how no one, and no one is talking about how Tony Blinken was assisting in ushering documents as depicted on Hunter Biden's laptop with the Qataris at the embassy. But, you know, he's now the Secretary of State, so shut up, Tory. But, yeah, maybe we should watch, you know, what Blinken warned. He put his foot down. He's like, you're not going to mess with the U.S. Watch. New reaction today from Secretary of State Antony Blinken to that military coup in Niger. This after the soldiers who staged the uprising have now elected their military leader as new head of state. The White House condemned their actions. Here's Blinken at a news conference in Australia. Let me be very, very clear about this as I have been in my phone conversations. Our economic and security partnership with Niger, which is significant, hundreds of millions of dollars, depends on the continuation of the democratic governance and constitutional order that has been disrupted. So uh, that assistance, that support is in clear jeopardy as a result of these actions, which is another reason why they need to be immediately reversed. NBC's Courtney Cuby is in the capital city of Niamey. Courtney, welcome. Uh, it has been four days, right, since that revolt. So how are things over there? What are you seeing? Yeah, that's right. And it's been about a day now since we've had one person from this military council who's emerged as the leader, the self-proclaimed president of this country. So what I will say is the first two days or so that, that since after President Bazoum, he's the democratically elected president here in Niger, the first two days or so after he began to be a hostage to his own security. Wait, are they claiming that the burning, uh, you know, cars and stuff are not peaceful protests because they're peaceful protests when they're happening in America, right? So maybe this is just another peaceful protest. What do we know, right? Why are we to judge? Hmm? 
So now, as you know, all our ships are headed to the Middle East. Iran, you know, is being courted by Biden. Hey, want to do like the Iran deal? And they're just like, mm, hey, Bricks, what's up? And they're showing some thigh, right? And then you've got Africa being war torn apart. And they're not. They're actually tearing themselves away from the war by taking control of their nations, which I have to say, though I absolutely adore when people of the same community and land decide to join forces and self-govern, it's almost like new money. For those of you that have lived a couple of lifetimes right now, you know that period of time. I remember it was like in my early 20s, right? Where you just had an excess of money and you just like burnt through it and you're like, where to go? You know, I was like in India, I was in Israel, I was in the Middle East and I was just like, oh, I'll buy that gemstone. You know how you just burn new wealth, you know, when you're stupid and young? How many of you got, you know, some payment when you were 21 and you just burnt through the money. This is what's going to happen with these nations that are naive. Now, a military agenda is never fun because it's always about rank and control. And this is how the militaries are structured. So it will not end very well. It will be extremely destabilized, but within themselves. So Let's hope that this is a peaceful protest, like they tried to convince everyone in America when they were burning things. Security forces, we saw some protests in the streets. Some of them got a little bit heated, though, Alex, including burning some vehicles, throwing stones. But in the two days since then, we haven't seen protests. The streets are relatively calm. People are operating. Oh, shit. She called it a protest. Mostly peaceful, just a couple cars burning, you know, and buildings. But, you know, now it's pretty calm. So it's mostly peaceful protests. ...as normal. Now, from the U.S. perspective, they still recognize President Fazum as the leader here of this country. We heard Secretary of State Antony Blinken. He actually has spoken to him twice since he's became a, de a detainee in his own presidential residence. We also heard some pretty strong language out of the White House late this week John Kirby, the spokesperson for the National Security Council, is laying out some of the real consequences that could befall Niger if this coup were to stick. Here's what he had to say. The United States condemns in the strongest terms any effort to seize power by force and to disrupt constitutional order in Niger. A military takeover may cause the United States to seize security. Wait, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Stop. Wait. <laughs> Military takeover may cause. Didn't we do military takeovers? Aren't we celebrating our 20th year anniversary of the military takeover of Iraq? Didn't we do a military takeover when we took out Gaddafi? Didn't we do a military takeover? I don't know of this nation with COVID, you know, with uh, mandates. Didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? We're jeopardizing existing security and non-security partnerships. You don't have any. You're not the boss totally not the boss and other cooperation with the government of Niger jeopardizing existing security and non-security partnerships to the people of Niger it's important that you know the United States and this administration stands with you we are committed to defending democratic governance and the respect for the rule of law and human rights we are getting our asses kicked as a nation we are getting our asses kicked so Blinken just said mm. 
I'm telling you right now, you ousted him and we are stopping assistance and support from the U.S. Oh, no. We can't have that happen. Oh, no. Like they give a shit. Here's what Forbes has to tell you about the global impact of Niger. People probably didn't even know it existed. They thought it was Nigeria. I mean, because, you know, people are really good with maps and understanding the river Niger and yellow cake uranium. Really good at, you know, understanding Nigeria and Niger. <laughs> are you doing the Niger? Yeah. Okay. Here's what Forbes has to say. And then, wait, it's better. I'm going to show you what the real boss of this whole debacle that set it up, that empowered and fed them, had to say about it today. Because we are literally, as a nation, getting our asses kicked across the world. And China is not only eating our lunch, they're bullying us for lunch money. They've taken everything and, you know, we're almost at that 33 mark, dang. Hi everybody, I'm Diane Brady. Soldiers in the West African nation of Niger have declared the leader of their coup, General Abdurrahman Chiani, to be the new head of state, having profound implications for the region and as well as the rest of the world. Um, to discuss this, I'm joined by Dr. Ebenezer Obadari, the Douglas Dillon Senior Fellow for Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Nice to see you, Dr. Obadari. Um, can you tell us a bit more about why does this matter um, for the rest of the world? Let's start with the importance of Niger on every level. Okay, thank you for having me. Um, it matters for, for maybe a couple of reasons. Um, I'm sure many um, Americans may not have heard of Niger before. Um, it's a Sahelian West African, West African country, um, shares borders with Burkina Faso, Mali, and Nigeria. And the coup d'etat that has just taken place in Niger matters, for, at least from an American standpoint, for mm -hmm. at least two reasons. One is that Niger is one of at least six countries into which the United States government has poured billions of dollars over the last two decades. Mm -hmm. um, Niger, Burkina Faso, Mali, Mauritania, Senegal, with two distinct aims in mind. One is to help them stabilize as democratic plural countries. That's number one. But the other, the other, the other reason that America has been so involved in these countries is to make sure that they help us serve as a bridgehead in the battle against ISIS and its affiliates, mm -hmm. affiliates in in that in that region of of of, uh, of, of Africa. But I, I don't know if uh, your members of the audience will recall that back in March, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, as part of his visit to, to Africa, actually visited Niamey, the capital of Niger. Mm -hmm. The first ever such visit by an American Secretary of State. And during that visit, he promised the people of Niger and the now ousted President Bazoum American commitment to four cornerstone principles, defense, diplomacy, democracy, and development. One of that, that quartet, arguably the most important one, democracy, is now under threat, is in jeopardy, and 
the ball is now back in America's court. So for these and other reasons, it's important that Americans pay attention to what has well, just happened in Egypt. Let's talk about President Bazoum right now and the importance. It seemed like a very fragile democracy given... Um, so it's a great question because this is not often factored into most political analysis. So Niger has a population of about 20, 25 million, largely arid. Um, on the United Nations Human Development Index, the last one I saw, I think for the last year, it was ranked 189 out of 191 countries. So this is an, an extremely poor country. So mm -hmm. that's that for context, that's important to understand. But it's also one of six countries, you know, I mentioned Burkina Faso, Chad, Mali, Mauritania, Senegal. These are salient countries facing frequent, you know, weather swings, increasing desertification, um, very deadly, harder, um, agriculturalist conflict. Over the last 15 years, 2.5 million people, these countries, these six countries mm -hmm. have a population of about 100 million. Over the last 10 to 15 years, 2.5 million people have been displaced due to increasing desertification and the conflicts emanating emanating from that. So it's important to put that in context. But let me also quickly add a caveat, mm -hmm. which is that desertification, all these other problems that can be traced to climate change do not have consequences in the vacuum. They also interact with governance. So it's important for people to understand that it's not just a matter of people reacting to climate change. Poor governance deepens the effect of climate change. So long term, in terms of policy, what you're looking at is a situation where, on the one hand, Western governments, supporters of democracy in West Africa, help those countries manage climate change. And the best way to manage climate change is to focus on questions of governance. Yeah, we need climate change. We need climate lockdown, like I told you years ago, we're going to have it totally need climate change in Africa, right? <laughs> Where they now just got power and they should be very careful. Get the fuck out of here. Our ass is being kicked across the world. And before we exit with China's, they really insulted us. I'm insulted as an American, completely insulted as an American. But here's the thing. Russia doesn't think that the Niger coup is a bad deal. In you know, in all honesty, Borders are made and remade many, many, many times. And um, sometimes you got to let people try to put the T-shirt on themselves. And here we are. Following the coup in Niger, Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin has apparently supposed remain on alert following the coup in Niger. Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin has apparently supported the takeover. Channels associated with the mercenary group have released a voice message purportedly of Prigozhin in which he can be heard hailing the coup as good news. This comes shortly after the Wagner chief said that his group is seeking to increase its presence in Africa. More in our next report. Appearing active and free despite a failed mutiny, Wagner mercenary boss Yevgeny Prigozhin, who rebelled against the Russian army top brass last month, apparently hailed Niger's military coup as good news. He purportedly said Niger had rid itself of colonizers and offered his fighters services to restore order. 
It came through a Telegram voice message that sounded like Prigozhin, though Reuters could not confirm with certainty that it was him. A video on Wednesday, which Reuters has seen but could not verify its authenticity, showed Prigozhin telling his fighters in Belarus they would take no further part in the Ukraine war and would head for Africa instead. These were some of the... And that's because they already know where the real war is. Ukraine is just to, it's almost like the Greeks when they held off Mussolini and then the, you know, they, the, the, the Germans came and left the rest to freeze and that's how they lost. It's the same freaking tactic, you know? And they, oh, military coup. I talk about we're all the specialists. These are just broad military contract companies. They're mercenaries. Really? Wagner's going to be 200 kilometers away from Moscow and then put tail under their ass and say we're going? In the meantime, Putin gave his side swipe smile, just like when he picks up a newborn puppy. Get out of here. <laughs> the narrative's falling apart. Everybody knows where the war is. And it's going to be in the heart of the Mediterranean, in that little nestled piece of Tartar, right, by Syria. Damn, we've been talking about this for years. And, but that's not Africa. Wait, you got to enter somewhere, right? You got to start somewhere. I mean, we're sending our ships there. AFRICOM has been activated. Navy 7th Fleet activated. And the U.S. now has sanctions on them. Oh, wait. I'll tell you that once you see this. I'm sorry, I have to do my commentary here. What kind of pussy does Blinken look like right now? Oh, there's still a chance that it's not fully successful and we'll keep the guy we put in there. We got Wagner Group coming in and they're like, yep, that's what's up. That's what's up. We look like smacked vaginas, right? That is the big issue for me right now. Because I need a boss man to run my country. I don't need some guy that can't tie a shoe. I need a boss man like this that walks in and pushes everybody else aside and says, watch out, man. I'm here. Move it. Let's see what's going on here. That's what's up. That's leadership right there. Not this. Oh, we, oh, we almost, you know, we need memes of the guy from that insurance thing with the dollar and have, you know, Basum hanging out. Oh, we almost got it. Almost got it. Now we got Wagner Group in there. And then Tony, guess what? We're not going to give you aid. And then it's like, oh my God, Russia's blocking Ukraine from giving food to African countries. I thought they didn't have food. I thought that a trillion dollars that they've gotten from us and then some that they were hungry, but allegedly they have food surplus that they're giving to the African nations. And so now Russia's the bad guy because, oh, they're blocking this and now they can't give poor Africans food. Yet you're sitting there and you're like, wait a minute. You just took all my federal tax dollars because we got to keep their government running and they're hungry and they need food. But then Putin came in and blocked it. And, you know, now Ukraine can't give food. I'm extremely confused. Which one is it? Are they hungry and broke or not? So then China said, no, no. Then Russia said, well, you know, since we blocked it and Ukraine has so much food, 
we'll dedicate that to those six nations. We'll give them grain. And guess what? Our grain isn't Monsanto grain. It is non-GMO. You will have food that is the real food. Because <laughs> you know, what you don't realize is that the food you buy from Walmart is no longer food. The meat you buy doesn't even have to be labeled as lab-grown. Ever taste a steak at Walmart? And a steak that's like grass-fed from your local community? Damn, those Amish are going to be busy as shit. They need to start the lambs. But having said that, China has decided to answer Tony Blinken. What do you mean? Why would China answer Tony Blinken? What did I tell you at the beginning of the show? China, 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 China. Nine years ago, they started doing their energy. Nine years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, Mali. Oh, did you hear how Guinea just joined with the Mali and the Burkina Faso backing Niger? Huh. See, it only takes one person on every continent to make it happen. We got our Trump. They had their Burkina Faso. What is going on with China? China is the one that answered to the call. China answered the call. Oh, you're putting sanctions on Niger? Well, this is hot off the press. Take a listen to this. And whoa. Market sells nearly every electronic product you can think of. And many of them contain gallium. Market sells nearly every electronic product you can think of. Many of them contain gallium and germanium, raw materials critical for the development of semiconductors. China is the world's largest supplier of both. And from Tuesday, foreign buyers will have to apply for licenses to purchase them. This seller says the move is fair. It's a right that China has this restriction. If we don't have countermeasures, America will continue to put sanctions on China. China should develop its own technology faster to make our country stronger. The export control is Beijing's response to wide-ranging U.S. restrictions targeting Chinese technology firms. The price of these raw materials has risen in recent weeks. Chinese analysts say Beijing is sending a warning to the United States by putting export controls on germanium and gallium. And this could just be the beginning of more restrictions on other critical raw materials. Multinational companies say they're being caught in the geopolitical crossfire between the two superpowers. Business confidence has eroded. There's uncertainty, there's a risk about it. And this, uh, any risk, any uncertainty is not good for business. It means that uh, investment decisions, employment decisions, um, they, they're going to be affected by this. Beijing says the move protects China's national security and does not target any third party. But state media say the U.S.'s defense industry is likely to suffer. Germanium and gallium are used in advanced radar systems, warships, and ground installations. Washington says it also wants to keep American technology out of reach of China's armed forces. Where is the end, end point? Uh, the U.S. is in, 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 insistent that the China is a threat. They're trying to contain it. They're saying we're not going to let you have, quote, our technology. But it's not just U.S. technology. They're also going to Japan, they're going to Holland and saying don't sell China any equipment. In 2010, China imposed a ban on all so-called rare earth exports to Japan after a dispute sparked by a boating collision. 
If Beijing chooses to implement further controls, the price of countless devices, including smartphones, laptops, and solar panels, could rise. Katrina Yu, Al Jazeera, Beijing. Well, let's get more on this with Mohan Yelashetty. He is Associate Professor of Resources Engineering at Monash University and co-founder of Critical Minerals Consortium. He joins us from Melbourne. Thank you very much for being on Al Jazeera. First of all, can you just give us a little bit of context to this? How big a deal is this and how much impact could it have? Yeah, thanks, Tom, for having me in, in the show. And uh, yeah, it's uh, lovely to talk to you. Yeah, as a Critical Minerals uh, co-founder, Critical Minerals uh, Consortium co-founder, we have been looking at all these uh, geopolitics and how the price escalations have happened in the past of various commodities. Uh, so just to give a context, uh, a mineral is deemed to be critical when there is a risk of supply mm -hmm. and such a restriction or such a consequence, uh, such a restriction would have enormous consequence, for example, to the number of industries. For example, gallium and germanium uh, are the two candidates that we are talking about. So they are required for a number of different uh, components, for example, from integrated circuits uh, uh, to laser diodes, light emitting diodes, wow. and solar cells. And uh, yeah, for a number of those uh, high-tech industries, they are very, very crucial uh, ingredients. Yeah, so, so if they are restricted, I mean, what sort of impact is that going to have on manufacturing semiconductors in particular? Yeah, because as they are, in, in many cases, they are irreplaceable. For example, of course, uh, you know, there are, for example, if you talk about uh, solar cells, indium phosphate, uh, phosphide is considered as an alternative option, but there are, in a number of cases, the options are very limited in terms of, you know, which can substitute some of these important ingredients that go into manufacturing. One, uh, when you have uh, restricted supply, that means people have to pay price premium mm -hmm. to get uh, source these materials. That means the components and the finished products prices are going to Go up. How Again, soon? How soon? An everyone impact? is already. Sorry to interrupt. How, how soon could we see an impact on prices for for the everyday consumer? So yeah, it, it does take a little while for these to be implemented. But uh, now that uh, China has decided in next uh, couple of days these restrictions are going to come into force, that means already uh, the struggling supply chains will further uh, become a bit a uh, bit more stringent in that uh, maybe you know uh, already there's mm -hmm. a short supply of these materials so uh, anytime in the next couple of months uh, people would uh, feel feel right. the pressure of uh, the, the restrict yeah. restricted supplies as we heard from our, our correspondent just before that this could be the beginning of restrictions what else could china do what else do they have up their sleeve do you think yeah if you look at uh, majority of uh, the raw material supply chains uh, irrespective of where they are mined. For example, if you look at lithium, Australia produces about world's 50% lithium ore, right? Ore concentrate. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to China. About 90% of the downstream processing occurs in China. So that's where China has foresaw that, uh, you know, this is going to be the next boom. And then they invested heavily into these uh, processing industries and also uh, the, the supply chains. 
So if you look at uh, rare earths today, China controls about 60% of them. And right. likewise, uh, platinum group of minerals. Now, if you look at gallium itself, about 80% of their supplies are controlled by China. Germanium and gallium. Well, I can tell you that we have a couple of mines in the U.S. You know, as of today, we have to apply to be able to purchase it. No more phones, cell phones, cars. Tesla might be under, you know. But did you know that we have six? The most mines we have actually are nine for gallium, and they're in Washington. And only four producers there. In Arizona, the next top one, there are six gallium mines. And in Utah, we have five. In essence, mm, we have 12 states that have gallium mines. I would also include three in Illinois. And then there's like two in California, two in Colorado, and one in Arkansas, one in Idaho, one in Vermont, one in Virginia. And that's for gallium. Germanium, you know, is almost um, weird. We have 13 mines. 16, uh, 13 states, sorry, that have mines. Idaho is the leading one. It has 16 mines, but it doesn't produce it. So weird. And the next highest germanium mines are in Colorado, where they have four of them and two produce. And then Utah, where they have four, but two produce. And then we have one in Louisiana. We have a couple in Kentucky, Illinois three in California, three in Washington, and Washington's also a producer. Highest producer is actually Tennessee. They have three mines, three producers. But here's the thing. Didn't we stop mining? Didn't they take it all down and say, oh, we don't need to be doing this. We don't need to be mining. We need clean energy. Well, here's what happens. You want clean energy? Did you just install a new nuclear reactor? Well, here are some fun super facts. Uranium resources. The highest one in the world right now is in Kazakhstan with uh, 336,000 tons. Um, and then the next one is 242,000 tons. Guess where that is? I want you to take a wild guess. That's right. Niger. Well, actually, no. Canada's a little bit above. It's got 300. I lied. Canada is the top uranium holder. Okay. I forgot about Canada. Keep ignoring them for a very specific reason. So Canada has 361,000 tons. Kazakhstan has 336,000 tons. Then third is Niger, Niger, 242,000 tons. And then the U.S. for 207. That's a lot of uranium considering China only has 115,000, considering Russia only has 181,000, even though that thing in Siberia is pretty big and nobody wants to talk about it. But you know, the largest uranium resources, germanium, gallium, niobium, we all know where that is. That's not on the African continent. It's on the continent you're not allowed to go to, right? So let's remember Africa is a big deal. Because the minute Tony Blinken said, guess what? We're going to give you sanctions. China said, guess what? So are we. And you're like, what? Wait, wait why, is, why, is, why is China fighting back? Isn't it? I'll see you guys tomorrow. Keep in mind, even the aliens know where the bad guy is.
I'm a gangster, but y'all knew that. The big boss dog, yeah, I had to do that. I keep a blue flag hanging out my backside, but only on the left side. Yeah, that's the crib side. Ain't no other way to play the game the way I play. I cut so much you thought I was a DJ. Two, big, big, one, yep, three. S C and double O P D O double G. I can't flick it, just break it, then when I take it, see, I specialize in making all the girls get naked. So bring your friends, all of y'all come inside. We got a world for me right here, not get live. So don't change the diesel, turn it up a little. I got a living room full of fine dime bristles. Waiting on the pizzle, the dizzle, and the shizzle. G's to the bizzack, now ladies, do we guess up? Drop it like it's all, drop it like it's all. On the pigs, drop it like it's Like it's 